Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. We're continuing this week in our series on arrow prayers. An arrow prayer is a short, simple prayer made in the moment, and this summer we'll be studying different arrow prayers throughout the Bible as we learn how to use them in our own lives. The prayer we'll be looking at today is one made by Thomas, my Lord and my God. Let's read the passage for today from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Before we get to Thomas's prayer, it's worth noting that John, the author of this gospel, is incredibly selective. He tells us right here, there are a lot of things he could have written that he didn't. In fact, his gospel only covers about 21 days in the life of Jesus. Moreover, nearly all commentators agree that the scene we just read is the climax of the whole book. There's only one more chapter after this one, and it's a kind of mopping up chapter, an epilogue. The story of Thomas is the climax. That means John sitting down and thinking of everything he could say, everything he or any of his associates could remember, chose this as the climax of the whole book. Why? The answer to that question holds something really important for us. John is saying, if you miss everything else in my book, don't miss this. Don't miss these words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. So let's look at them for a moment. When Dean first chose this as an example of arrow prayer, I have to confess, I was like, is it a prayer? It seems more like a confession or proclamation, a statement. But notice right before these words, it says Thomas answered him. Thomas spoke these words in reply to Jesus. Therefore, it was a prayer. We maybe don't think about it that way because so many of our prayers are mostly asking for things or talking about ourselves. Perhaps that's the first thing this prayer teaches us, that we ought to talk more about God than about ourselves when we pray. And this prayer is an arrow prayer. It's unplanned, unpremeditated, spoken in the moment, and this from someone you would probably not describe as spontaneous. Thomas was the logical, analytical one, the realist. He appears two other times in the Bible. In John eleven fifteen, Jesus is preparing to go to Bethany after Lazarus has died, and Thomas says to the other disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Impressive loyalty, but a bit, if not pessimistic, certainly at least realistic, and the tone is not one of joy, but of resignation. In John fourteen five, he is a spokesperson for those who have not understood what it means that Jesus is going away to the Father. One commentator writes, 
perhaps we can tentatively conjecture a loyal but somewhat unimaginative person who will act only on what he is sure of. We could go further back and guess that some of this has to do with Thomas being a twin. Names are important, and twice John tells us that Thomas was called Didymus, which means twin. Thomas is actually the Aramaic term for twin, and Didymus the Greek one. In the ancient world, twins were generally regarded as negative omens. Twin births had a high mortality rate, and twins messed up the laws of inheritance. Thomas was likely viewed in a separate or negative light as a twin, and that may have had something to do with his cautious or realistic personality. This is not the kind of person you would expect to spontaneously utter one of the greatest statements of faith and belief ever made. His words are the climax of this whole book. They go full circle back to the very first verse of John, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. How does this happen? How does a man who, from all we can gather, was not prone to spontaneous sentiment, come to utter this incredible arrow prayer? Let's take a look at that together. First, what led to this prayer? Secondly, what is this prayer expressing? Lastly, what do we learn from Thomas's prayer? First, what led to this prayer? Let's take a closer look at Thomas's encounter with Jesus. Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Mary sees him and tells the disciples about it. On that same evening, Jesus appears to the disciples as they are gathered in a room. Now, all the disciples are there that evening except for Thomas. We don't know why he was absent. Many commentators think perhaps he preferred to be alone in his grief and shock. When the others tell Thomas they saw Jesus, Thomas refuses to believe them, and this goes on for eight days. The verb told him in verse 25 is a present progressive verb, meaning they kept on trying to tell him. And for eight days, Thomas refuses to believe unless he has personal evidence. And Jesus allows this time to pass. He doesn't show up again right away. Then, on the Sunday one week after his resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples, who were all there this time. And what I want you to see is that Jesus turns his attention to Thomas with great gentleness. He has given Thomas space and time. He doesn't condemn or harshly rebuke him. He doesn't lecture him or stride in saying, they told you so. He begins by saying the same four words to them that he had said one week earlier peace be with you. Shalom, wholeness, everything made right. It's as if he is offering the same benediction to Thomas that he had missed through his earlier absence, giving him a second chance. He then speaks to Thomas with what is, far from being criticism, actually an invitation. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Jesus uses the same words that Thomas himself had used earlier in speaking with the other disciples. He quotes Thomas almost verbatim. In fact, I wonder if the reason why Jesus doesn't mention the wounds in his legs is because Thomas hadn't either. How did Jesus know what Thomas had been saying all week? We don't know, but one thing is clear. Jesus had been listening. Thomas could not have missed this. Jesus had been listening all along. Think about this for a moment. 
during the very time Thomas thought Jesus was gone forever, during the very week he must have felt the most abandoned and alone, Jesus was actually there all along. He had seen Thomas, the doubter, the loner, the twin, the one separated from the group. Jesus had heard every word Thomas had spoken. It's easy to feel lonely right now. I hadn't realized until now how much of a sense of collective togetherness I felt simply from being around other people. Even if I didn't know them that well personally, it meant something to see familiar faces on Sunday mornings or to be around people in a coffee shop or playground. We can feel like we're on our own these days. But I want you to remember that Jesus saw Thomas during the week he felt most abandoned. What Thomas thought were all his hopes dashed to the ground forever was actually the prelude to one of the greatest statements of faith ever made. And this can be our hope too. Lately, I've been thinking about how in the Bible, there are these swan songs, final speeches or writings from a person who is dying. And these passages often say something similar. When someone who has walked with God through all the highs and lows of life looks back and considers what they want or need to tell others, they often mention exactly what Thomas is experiencing here, God's faithful presence. In his last speech on the plain of Moab in Deuteronomy 31, Moses says, It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Before he dies, David says in 1 Chronicles 28, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And near the end of 2 Timothy, in the last letter he will write, sitting in a dungeon pit knowing his execution is near, Paul writes, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord will rescue me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is the Lord we have, one who never leaves or forsakes us, even when we feel most lonely. Through his choice of words, Jesus reminds Thomas that he has never left. He transforms words of bitter resolve into an invitation to faith. And that invitation was an incredibly humble and personal one. I don't know that there's anything more personal than inviting someone to touch your wounds. Normally, we like to hide our wounds, but here Jesus offers them to Thomas. But Jesus is not only gentle, but firm. Unlike last time, he walks through a locked door, making his supernatural abilities clear. He gives Thomas time for his doubts, yes, but he does confront them. He calls out Thomas's unbelief for what it is. Jesus is unexpectedly gentle, yet inescapably firm, full of grace and truth. And this leads us to the second question. What does Thomas's prayer express in response? First, his prayer is a personal response to a personal encounter. As we've noted, Jesus quotes Thomas's personal words. He makes a personal offer for Thomas to touch his body. And so Thomas's prayer is personal in response. He doesn't say, Lord and God, or even my Lord and God, but my Lord and my God. Twice, he personalizes a divine epithet. Spurgeon said, he seems to take hold of the Lord Jesus with both hands by those two blessed mys. Is God personal to you? Would you call him your own God? Do you read the Bible as if it was personally written to you by one you love? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, The word of scripture should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long, just like the words of someone you love. And just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart. Ponder this word long in your heart until it has gone right into you and taken possession of you. Secondly, Thomas's prayer expresses the awe and acknowledgement due a God. As we've noted, something supernatural is happening here. Jesus has walked through a door, he has risen from the dead, and has the wounds to show for it. At the core, Thomas's prayer is a clear acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity. The words Lord and God here are virtually equivalent in meaning. Nowadays, we might think Lord means some kind of master, whereas God means someone divine. But to a first century Jew, they would have been one and the same. In fact, Lord was the word that their Greek translation of the Old Testament commonly used for God. David calls God, my God and my Lord, in Psalm thirty-five twenty-three. By using these words, Thomas is saying that Jesus is Yahweh. In fact, this is one of the only places where a disciple directly refers to Jesus as God. Moreover, there's an exclamation point there. This is no detached theological statement. These are words of adoration and awe. They are actually the first words of worship for the risen Christ. There's also submission and service being expressed here. To acknowledge someone as your Lord is to acknowledge their authority over your life. John doesn't tell us more about Thomas's life, but church history indicates that he likely went to spread the gospel to India and died as a martyr there. If you look at each of the resurrection encounters in this chapter, there is always an action that results. Mary is told to go tell the others. The disciples are commissioned as apostles. Thomas's encounter is no exception. Wrapped into this prayer is Thomas's willingness to serve Christ in his life, whatever that may involve. Lastly, Thomas's prayer shows that he has dropped his conditions. I don't know how long I read this passage before noticing this, but in all likelihood, Thomas doesn't touch. We don't know for sure, but it seems like if Thomas had touched Jesus, John would have noted that. And when Jesus replies to Thomas, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me, not because you have touched me? Most commentators agree that Thomas does not touch. He drops his conditions. His prayer is basically a way of saying, I no longer need to touch your wounds to know who you are. I am willing to give up the demands I made. So many of us come to God with conditions. God, I'll follow you if I can get into this grad school, if I can get this promotion, if I can marry him. God, I'll follow you if I can sense your presence, if life is going well, if I feel happy. Thomas wanted to be able to feel something. He wanted to see it and touch it before he would believe it. But in order to really grasp what faith is, we have to be willing to believe and follow without conditions. And that's what Thomas understands in the end. John Newton, the former slave trader and author of Amazing Grace, wrote in one of his letters, I believe there may be a real exercise of faith and growth in grace when our sensible feelings are faint and low. A soul may be in as thriving a state when thirsting, seeking, and mourning after the Lord as when actually rejoicing in Him, as much in earnest when fighting in the valley as when singing upon the mount. Nay, dark seasons afford the surest and strongest manifestations of the power of faith. 
to hold fast the word of promise, to maintain a hatred of sin, to go on steadfastly in the path of duty, when we have but little comfort, is a more certain evidence of grace than a thousand things which we may do or forbear when our spirits are warm and lively. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you willing to follow Jesus even if you don't see everything happen in your life as you wish it would? Do you know what it means for your soul to thrive even when seeking and mourning after the Lord? Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There is a joy that comes with believing even when our sensible feelings are faint and low. So we see that Thomas's prayer is personal. It expresses the awe, acknowledgement, and submission that is due a God. And it shows that he is willing to follow Jesus without condition. We come now to this last question. What do we learn from Thomas's story and his prayer? First, we learn that it's okay to be honest with our doubts. I think part of the reason Thomas is able to pray this prayer is precisely because of his honesty with his doubts. He could have been like, well, all right, guys, I'm not totally sure, but whatever, I'll go with it. He's kind of my God. I'll hedge my bets, avoid confrontation, and see how it goes. Sometimes that's how some of us approach our faith, right? Neither here nor there, kind of lukewarm, saying Jesus is our Lord, but not actually following him and how we live in all areas of our lives. G.K. Chesterton said, The problem with the Christian faith is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. One thing you can say about Thomas is that he was not lukewarm. He did not leave his faith untried. He was brutally honest about his doubts, but then he also really meant what he prayed. I don't think he could have had the latter without the former. Timothy Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Jesus never shames Thomas for his doubt. He neither demands that Thomas suppress his doubts or allows him to succumb entirely to them, but rather he meets him at his point of doubt. It's much better to have doubts than to be lukewarm about our faith. We can be honest about our doubts with God and other believers. Secondly, we learn from Thomas that it's important not to give up on community. Now, we could say all this started because Thomas missed the first coming of Jesus. We don't know why he was absent. Perhaps he should have been there. And perhaps that is a lesson to us to be wary of isolation, especially during times of crisis. But regardless, Thomas returns that second Sunday, despite the fact that there was probably some tension between him and the others. There was even more reason to avoid them the second Sunday than the first. But he shows up. And it is in community that he encounters Jesus. Did you notice that Thomas's prayer, while addressed to Jesus, is spoken in the presence of the group? Jesus could have found Thomas alone somewhere, but he doesn't. In fact, there's a pattern in this chapter. After Jesus rose, he first appears to an individual, Mary, then to a group, the disciples, and now he appears to both. He focuses on Thomas as an individual, but does it within the context of a group. 
The pattern builds into an encounter that is personal to the individual, yet occurs in the context of community. I think there's something about Thomas's prayer that, however personal, would not have had the same power and impact if it had not been uttered in the presence of others. God works in a unique and irreplaceable way in and through us when we are gathered in community. Right now, it's easy to neglect Christian fellowship. The avenues for connection we're used to aren't possible anymore. We're at the point where virtual meetings have lost their novelty. <laughs> we're tired. But as Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not neglect to meet together. Seek community however you can. Find a place where you can share your doubts and fears, your adoration and awe with other believers. Lastly, Thomas's prayer teaches us that prayer should be a response to God. Thomas may have positioned himself well by being honest with his doubts and staying committed to community, but in the end, his prayer was simply a response to his encounter with Jesus. In order to respond to something, you have to be available and you have to be listening. You know, Thomas doesn't say very much to Jesus during this encounter. Just these five words. He doesn't burst into talk the moment Jesus appears. He doesn't hash out his demands or vent about his suffering. Now, granted, (laughs) he was probably struck speechless to some degree. But the point is, he wasn't talking. And that allowed him to listen to Jesus, to hear all the things we've talked about. Jesus' kindness and gentleness, his firmness and exhortation, his faithful presence. Listening allowed Thomas to see Jesus, to see his wounds, to see his divinity, And through the listening, Thomas is changed. He goes from someone who demands what he wants to someone who is willing to follow Jesus unto death even without it. His prayer is simply a natural reflection of that. Before you pray, do you listen to Jesus? I have to confess, very often I get it backwards. I am more available for and listen more to my culture, my surroundings, my circumstances, or myself than to God. I therefore think primarily about what I want or what my culture or circumstances dictate. Then, when I pray, I pretty much jump right to asking God for what I want or talking with Him about how I happen to be feeling about my circumstances. That's okay sometimes, but that's not the picture of prayer that we see here. What we see here is the reverse of that. Thomas is available for and listens to Jesus first. He thinks first about who Jesus is. He hears his words and spends time with him. And as a result of that, he himself is changed. How he sees himself and his circumstances changes. Then, when he prays, his prayer is first, and only actually, a recognition of and response to who Jesus is to him. Of course, this is not to say that we shouldn't ask for things in prayer, but I think if we got the order right, what we ask for would be different. That's why it's important to start by listening. This often doesn't happen naturally. We have to create the space for it and direct our attention to it. It can help to have a physical space set aside in the house for God. Sometimes designating a certain amount of time for listening to God is helpful, like 10 minutes a day. Sometimes worship music helps, listening together with other people, having art or photos or a candle lit, going somewhere alone in nature. Eventually, we begin to better listen to God all throughout the day. Do Thomas's words reflect the tenor of your prayer life? Do you listen to him? Do you have space for awe and adoration in your day? 
Do you reflect on Jesus' kindness and look upon his wounds? Are you willing to drop your conditions and follow Jesus at any cost? In the end, Thomas's prayer was a result of a power encounter with Jesus. This chapter is full of people who are engulfed in emotions that flow from certainties which, in the moment, appear insurmountable. Mary's grief, the disciples' fear, Thomas's doubt. But Jesus both meets them in that very emotion and then transforms them through his resurrection power and his steadfast love. John says, I'm telling you these stories, and in fact, I wrote this whole book so that you too may have a personal encounter with the power and love of Jesus for you. I am writing this so that you may have life in his name. May Thomas's words be ours as we live out our lives for Jesus now and look forward to eternal life with him forever, our Lord and our God.